Hey, hey, welcome to Disability Law Show. We are back at it. John Scholes here, Tamara Gopian from Sam Firu, Tamara and LLP, pulling out all the big guns and all the questions to be answered today. And you can also continue that conversation when we're not doing this radio show. How do you do it? one 855 Uh They're already stacking up Tamara emails, questions from mydisabilityquestions.com. We're going to get to those momentarily, but we always start off, get warmed up, as we say, with uh, something you've been working on, pal. What do you this week was a really busy week with lots of calls john and it's not that any other week is any particularly worse or better than others but this week for some reason uh, i had lots and lots of phone calls and consultations as you know those are all absolutely free and we're more than happy to speak to as many people who want to contact us to get some advice about the disability claims and what I wanted to focus on this week is an individual, um, let's call him Bob. I want to keep his, his mm-hmm. com- information confidential, but Bob and I had a very long discussion about his disability claim and I am going to get retained and I'm going to help him with his disability claim. But I thought that his claim had some really interesting aspects to it that I wanted to share with our listeners. Just as a word to the wise, if this sounds familiar, you know, there are options. And so, you know where it's going to go, John, because you've heard me talk about appeals a lot. But let's start from the beginning, okay? Um, so Bob has worked uh, exclusively in labor-intensive type roles. Uh, he was working for a large energy company for a long time as a laborer and driver and skid operator, that kind of thing. He's 45. And he developed, uh, somewhat suddenly following uh, a relatively minor cold, uh, some pretty severe uh, vertigo, dizziness, um, and migraine headaches. Now, initially, his doctor didn't really know what was going on. So they start treating the symptoms as per each symptom and realize that there could be a potential connection from one to the other. And so then the doctor decides, look, you know, I think I need a a more specific specialist to look into this. So, of course, he gets referred to a neurologist. They do a bunch of scans and they conclude that he's got um, a a condition called BPPV, a very complicated way to say it's it's a disorder of the inner ear that causes symptoms like dizziness and vertigo and unsteadiness and nausea which of course Bob had all of those symptoms and on top of everything else he was diagnosed officially with migraine headaches so he what he was experiencing John was that any time he would stare at a screen for like more than even 10 minutes any time he would even bend over like he described to me just getting like laundry out of the laundry basket or the machine for example would trigger his dizziness and his uh, potential headaches and only certain symptoms were getting treated by the things that he was trying to do, which included medication um, and therapy. He got on him. He did a lot of physiotherapy. I know our listeners who suffer from migraines know that, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. And so sometimes physical therapy can also be very, very helpful in trying to address these conditions. But nothing was helping. And so he was down the path, obviously, of getting disability benefits. Uh, he had started out with getting short-term disability and then that transition to long-term disability. Um, thankfully, actually, John, because sometimes when individuals have these kinds of health issues that it's not really clear what's going on, insurance companies will resist claims right out of the gates for these kinds of conditions. But anyway, so they approve him for disability benefits and they do all of the things that they typically do, which is to adjudicate and ask him lots of questions about what he's doing and, you probe him about his treatment and so on and so inevitably what ends up happening is that he gets to just around that two-year mark and the definition under his policy changes 
and it changed from was he totally disabled from doing the labor position that he was doing for this energy company um, and had been doing uh, and had been approved for for the last uh, almost two years. And then that definition then changes to can you do anything else? So what they had to do with Bob was obviously probe his background, his education and his employment history. And, you know, not surprisingly with an individual with his profile, hadn't, you know, he hadn't even graduated high school. And like I said, he'd done very labor intensive type jobs for a long time, which the insurance company and all his doctors had agreed that if you've got this kind of a health issue, it's a very uh, difficult uh, health issue to have when you've got sort of safety sensitive type jobs, right? You can't really be driving. He wasn't driving at all, actually. And you can't really be operating equipment. You can't really be doing any heavy lifting whatsoever, any lifting at all, really. So long story short, um, insurance company makes uh, the determination that, yeah, no, we get it, uh, but we think that there's something sedentary, light duty type thing that you could do. And so we are not going to approve you past that two-year mark. So we think that there's some other occupation, even with your limited education, training, and experience, and we think you could be a, you know, a dispatcher or some other uh, position that they identified. Without taking into consideration, John, the limitations around screen time that I talked about, um, and obviously the fact that a lot of the treatment that he had already been doing hadn't actually resolved his health issues. So they were ongoing, and you know, naturally we would expect would prevent him from doing any type of job. So he gets declined. Um, good on him. He attempts to appeal. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he gets medical reports, further updated medical reports that comment on all of his symptoms and conditions and, uh, you know, reiterated from his family doctor that he cannot work in any setting, own occupation or any occupation. Insurance company denies again. Surprise, surprise. But they say, no, you know what? But if you don't agree with our decision, you can appeal again. And so, of course, as they do, they offer him a second appeal, and he, not knowing any better, decides, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm going to appeal again. This time, he gets his neurologist to prepare an opinion report. The neurologist also very clearly says, hey, look, he's had a couple of improvements. We're trying injections now. He's still doing the therapy. Uh, but, you know, it's very clear that he is totally disabled from any occupation. He really cannot work. Um, and you guys just need to basically approve his claim and continue paying him disability benefits. And do they not deny again? Okay. Of so, of course, they deny again. And so he's grappling at what to do and thankfully stumbles upon um, one of our uh, shows that we post on uh, the Internet, on YouTube, and decides to give us a call. And, of course, I talked to him and I said, you know what, Bob, look, um, I think your situation is very compelling. I, I think it was the first thing I said to him, John, when I spoke to him, was I want to help you. The fact that you've got a specialist who's confirming that you're totally disabled from any occupation tells me that the insurance company just has it wrong. And they're using this analysis of, well, look, it's subjective and you're just reporting it to your doctors and we really can't test it. And therefore, it must mean it's just not that bad and you should be able to get back to work. And that reasoning just has not flown with the courts. The courts have said, no, no, no. Um, just because you've got subjective symptoms doesn't mean you don't have a disabling health issue. You absolutely do. The courts have also said, John, that the onus, the legal onus, is on the insurance company to show that an individual like Bob can, in fact, do some other job. 
Now, Bob wouldn't know all this, of course. Um, I let him know some of this, of course, because I said, mm-hmm. look, yep. um, you know, you're going to appeal after appeal, and they're just going to keep ignoring your own doctor's medical advice. So you're left with what choices here? You've been without your LTD benefits for a number of months now. They are not persuaded, obviously, by the information that you've provided to them. But I can assure you that once I put it in a legal claim and it's in the hands of one of their lawyers, they are going to know about the legal onus. They are going to know that they are not on good footing medically to support the decision that they made to cut off his claim. So it's frustrating, John, that this still is happening, but insurers are doing this and adjusters are doing this. And people like Bob don't necessarily know where do I turn. And I just thought this was a great way to feature a call that I had, an individual that we are absolutely going to help. I have no doubt in my mind this is going to get resolved within a number of months of me getting involved. And we're going to get to that resolution that Bob has been looking for for a long time. And also take away the stress and the anxiety around having to deal with the adjusters time and time again, saying no and no and no once more, right? So look, this is why I think it's so important for people to find out about their rights. Listen to the shows, call us, you know, you can even access things anonymously. We're going to talk about mydisabilityquestions.com. You can post something. Um, you know, there's so many different ways to find out information about your rights with a disability claim. And at the very least, I hope that people access those resources. And if they think we can help, then don't hesitate. We're happy to help. And we're actually really good at helping people like Bob getting a resolution much sooner than him having to go through appeal after appeal. Well, I think it's it's that situation, and I guess you, you can't blame the insurance company. I put blame in quotes, whereas, you know, if they, if they do this with 50 people, 45 of them will accept it and walk away and try to appeal, run out the clock, and then they're then they're SOL. But, I mean, it's, you know, it's the small percentage they're banking on that don't go to someone like you and have this resolved properly. That's It's a money, it's a money thing, right? It, it, it is, absolutely, because you are right that the statistics around how many people just simply give up uh, right. is very, you know, it's very profitable right, for the insurance companies. And they have conceived of this appeal appeal process, not because it's in the policy. It's not in the disability policies, John. This is a regulatory thing. This is something to satisfy the regulators that they're, you know, there is some kind of a checks and balances. But it's it's smoke and mirrors. These, These checks and balances are simply more internal people, sometimes the same adjuster looking at the same information and asking them to come to a different conclusion. And when people walk away, from their rights and their entitlements to disability benefits, they know that it works. So why would the insurance company change their approach? And much to your point, you're absolutely right that in, that individuals like Bob only have two years to start a legal claim. Now, two years might, might seem like a long time when you think about two years, but, but Bob has been off work for almost three, and he's exactly. been trying to appeal his claim for six months. Yeah. And so in that time, if I had been able to work with him right from the start, we probably would be fairly close, if not resolved, with the insurance company in a situation like his. And so, look, I don't fault the insurer necessarily. I definitely don't fault Bob. It's not like the adjuster's going to tell him, and by the way, you can sue us. But, (laughs) you know, I think I also think that this is why there's such value in the types of things that we're doing at our firm with these shows, with the information that we have available to people, and absolutely with our free consultations. There is no downside to having a chat with one of us, and we can just take you through different conversations around what's happening with your disability claim and then ultimately if we can help we're going to help and we can suggest that to you and if you want our help you take it 
right? And hopefully away we go and we get to a point of resolving these kinds of claims for people like Bob. Awesome stuff. Good way to uh, to open the show uh, today. We're going to take a short break and get into your emails. And as Tamar mentioned, mydisabilityquestions.com. From, uh, some questions from there. In the meantime, yeah, reaching out any time to have that conversation on your own. We're not doing the show. Simple, 1-855-821-5900. And that email address, always help at disabilityrights.ca. Real simple. We'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show. Stand by. You bet this is the Disability Law Show. Good to have you listening for the, uh, the hour. If you've chosen to do so, it's going to make it that much smarter. It'll also give you the idea maybe to give tomorrow a call and ask some questions. It could be just for you. It could be for a colleague or a family member. It doesn't hurt just to reach out and ask a couple of questions. It won't cost you anything just to say hello. And get some basic information, one 821 5900 is how you go about doing that. The email is help at disabilityrights.ca, which is where we're landing right now. Emily, first one up, says, guys, I feel harassed by my case manager. She calls me every week, accuses me of trying to avoid her or my doctor, and has already sent me a bunch of letters already when I only just got approved for LTD benefits a few months ago. Is there anything I could do to protect myself from this kind of aggressive behavior? from the case manager. Wow. Emily, I'm so sorry that you have to experience this. Look, this is a good email, John, because we don't talk a lot about what's appropriate, right? So you start your disability claim, you've submitted your forms, um, you know, you likely had a call with this case manager right out of the gates, and, you know, that call typically will involve lots of questions around what Emily is doing and her health and so on and so forth, and they use that information along with the forms that you've submitted to make a determination on when it, whether or not you're going to be approved. And it sounds to me like Emily is saying she was approved, but just a few months ago. And then ever since then, she's been getting weekly phone calls from the adjuster. Um, I'm assuming asking how she's doing, and I'm assuming trying to get a sense of how much treatment she's getting for her disability claim. What I don't have good information on is what type of disability Emily has, but regardless, I got to think that weekly phone calls is excessive, okay? Typically, what you will see is a touch point roughly around every three to four weeks. Why is that? Disability benefits are a month-to-month benefit. I know it seems strange, like every month you have to show that you are still disabled under that policy for the adjuster and the insurance company to release that monthly benefit to you. Now, some insurance companies are better than others to say, you know what, we've approved you for three months. So they will reduce the touch points because they've accepted that certainly in the next three months, you're not going to get better miraculously and you're certainly not getting back to work. And so, you know, do we need that frequent uh, uh, touch point? Perhaps not. And so they'll approve you for a three-month window, two-month window, whatever it is. But when you start talking about these kinds of weekly phone calls, and I, you know what comes to mind, John, are those who have mental health disability claims, okay? And so they're already struggling with day-to-day function, they're struggling with probably accessing sufficient treatment for their mental health conditions, because that's certainly a real problem across the country where we practice. But more so than you add this kind of aggressiveness from an adjuster, and it's just going to make things, you know, much, much worse. So to get to the heart of the question, you know, what can Emily do in a situation like this to protect herself? Well, look, I'm a lawyer, so the first thing I'm going to advise you is you got to document this. Number one thing you've got to do is make sure you've got a paper trail around the number of contacts that you're getting, 
you know, concerns that you have about, you know, the comments being made by the adjuster or what's being said during these phone calls, you know, even having Emily send an email back to the adjuster saying, this is now the fourth call we've had in the last three weeks. Uh, you've asked me the same four questions. I've given you the same answers. You've got a medical update, that kind of thing. And your calls are giving me anxiety or are giving me a hard time. I'm regressing with my health. Even having that in an email to the adjuster is powerful because it will check the adjuster that you've confirmed something in writing and it's not so one-sided, right, John? Like when I, so I will get retained, you know, same with my colleagues. Our first step is to get a copy of that claims file. So we get the claims file and inevitably in that file, we'll see, you know, sort of the steps and stages the adjuster took during the adjudication of one of our client's claims. But it is one-sided in the way that they document calls and what they say or what they record as to what has been said during that call. They're not going to cough up the fact that they were particularly aggressive or critical of a claimant. They're not going to document that. So having that documented by Emily to the extent that she can is super helpful down the road if there is an issue. It also creates that paper trail that if there's a disconnect with this particular adjuster, it's absolutely fair, first of all, to have your doctor comment on it in a report to say, hey, these freaking phone calls, they're harming my client's you know, progress. It's you know, impacting her recovery. You know, this isn't something that I recommend medically. You need to have them scheduled or you need to reduce the, the, the contact points or perhaps reduce them even to writing. So having that medically supported would be really, really important too. And or alternatively, Emily can take this up you know, the chain. I know, ask for a manager, have a conversation with a manager to say, look, um, I don't know what the, the problem is with this adjuster. You know, this yeah. is what I've been experiencing. These are the health impacts of what I've been experiencing. These, this seems excessive to me. And, you know, perhaps you request a different adjuster. It doesn't always happen. Okay, John. And, and, and I think that it is a very extreme step. But if it's as difficult for Emily as it sounds like it is, to the point where she sent us an email about it, then I got to think that there are things that need to be put in place to protect her so that she can actually focus on her recovery and not just having to deal with phone calls with the adjuster. Generally speaking, my last comment about all of this would be that there is, though, a mutual duty of cooperation and a mutual duty of good faith. So we often talk about how insurance companies sort of go offside and, you know, there are times where they do not meet their duty of good faith. On the other hand, they also require the cooperation of people like Emily to allow them to adjudicate and review your claim. So you can't just simply ignore them during the life of your claim once you've been approved for LTD. That won't fly. The, they will most definitely send you letters saying you're, you're not being compliant and you've got to cooperate with our efforts. By the same token, it's a fine balance. And so if it's harming Emily's health, then I do think that it is, it is excessive and it is aggressive and it should be nipped. Um, and it can be best nipped by documentation, taking it up the chain, and getting your doctor to support that this is impacting your health. Emily, well done. And you know where you're going to make that phone call again to uh, Tamar and her team anytime, one 821 5900 Now, Tamar did mention MyDisabilityQuestions.com in the uh, first segment. And it's, it's a good website. It's, it's, it's free. It's anonymous. And it's another venue for you to ask your questions. And the cool part about it is when this thing was designed, it was designed with a searchable database. That's how the algorithm works. So you can look for questions similar to yours. And, uh, you know, hey, we all like saving a bit of time. If your question's already been asked, read the answer because it will be correct and in-depth. If not, you can leave your answers there, mydisabilityquestions.com. Uh, first one from it for today's show. Tomorrow, here we go. I've been on LTD for just under three years for mental health issues. Two questions. Number one, 
I've not been laid off or terminated by my employer. They obviously uh, owe me severance pay. Does my severance still accrue as long as I'm technically still employed on LTD now? Number two, is it automatic to get cost of living increases? I've questioned my insurer, and their answer was it's not the, in the policy. What hmm. do you think, pal? Really good questions. Really yep. good questions. So, look, I mean, whoever posted this, they're they're beyond the two-year mark, right, John? So that's a good thing. Um, you know, not great, I suppose, that they're still struggling with their mental health. So really important questions to ask about, look, what's going to happen with my employment? And do I get an increase for my LTD benefit? Why don't we start with the second one? It's a little bit simpler to to address. And the second one is this cost of living adjustment, or what we call COLA for short. We love acronyms, John, in, uh, in disability <laughs> litigation. So COLA. So what's the COLA? So um, some disability policies will have a section that says if uh, you are in a certain class of employees or certain category of employee, you will be able to get a bump up of your LTD benefit yearly at some point in the year. Sometimes it's mid-year, sometimes it's in January. But not all disability policies have that. So Whoever posted this, you want to find that out. And the answer actually is likely with your employer or the insurer can send you a copy of the policy. You just have to request it in writing and then maybe send it to me and I'll take a look and I'll see if you're subject to a cost of living adjustment. Um, because disability benefits, the, the tricky part when you're on claim for so long is that they are set to the level of income this person was getting before their disability began. And usually it's about two-thirds of what you're making at that time. So imagine what's happened with us with inflation in Canada in the last number of years and interest rates and all these other things. You know, would that salary have increased over time? Maybe. And therefore, by proportion, when you look at what the LTD benefit is, if you're taking a percentage of that salary, yes. then having it set in that you know initial phase in that three years ago time frame means that it's not going to change over the life of the course of your claim, whether it's three years, two years, five years, or 20 years. And so having this cost of living adjustment could be critical to at least have that one, two, three percent bump up every year in order for it to at least track a little bit you know, what's happening with inflation the last number of years. Now, this is, I'm going to put my broker hat on. If you are starting a new job and you have the option of increasing your LTD coverage and getting this COLA, do it, okay? It's a little bit of extra premium, but it's a really important, yeah. uh, you know, uh, function of disability because you never know how long it's going to be. You never know if you're going to need it at all, but it's nice to have that added protection. Uh, and, you know, if you can get that option, get that option. So... That leaves me with what happens with your employment. Yes. The short answer to that is, yes, you do continue to accrue years of service while you are on long-term disability benefits. And this is a question, John, it really goes to the heart of what we do at our firm because we specialize not only in disability litigation, personal injury litigation, but also employment law. And these are the two or three main arms of the firm. And you can see the cross-section between disability Absolutely. and employment. There's so much crossover. Yep. And so myself and some of the other lawyers at our team actually work in, on both sides of, of the practice area for reasons like this, because there are oftentimes decisions that have to be made around, look, you know, is this an employment claim? Is this a disability claim? Perhaps there are two claims. What do we do with that? And a question like this really comes goes to the heart of it. And so it absolutely will accrue years of service. But are you actually entitled to a severance? Well, that's a different question, right? And so 
you may want a severance, but you may not always be entitled to a severance. And so when you've been off work for, you know, just under three years, as this this uh, message describes to us, it could be that if your disability continues to prevent you from going back to your job, it could give rise to a concept called frustration of contract. This is something that exists um, in, you know, Ontario, for example, under the Employment Standards Act, there are protections for individuals whose employment is frustrated as a result of disability. There are certain minimum compensation, minimum monies that you're entitled to, even if your health prevents you from working. That calculation of what you're entitled to is all of your years of service, including the years that you may be on disability. But it may not necessarily be a full severance package, depending on what, how long you worked and where you worked and what your income level was and so on. But if you've got further questions about this, as I said earlier, totally happy to talk to people at any phase. You can also go to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca and plunk your information, totally anonymous, and it will also give you a sense of what your entitlements might be for severance. But the fact that this individual has been off for a few years may therefore mean that those severance entitlements may change, but it is not zero. And that's the key. Just because you're on disability doesn't mean you're not necessarily entitled to compensation from your employer, regardless of what's happening with your employment while you're off dealing with your health. And that is an amazing answer and a reminder that uh, we also do the uh, employment law show that Tamara's familiar with. And yeah, many of the uh, many of the folks in the firm will do both. And uh, you want to reach out because there is so much crossover. So same number, both sides, right? One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. But for the purposes of the show, the email address, Arpita, you're coming up. Thank you for that. It's help at disabilityrights.ca. And we did mention it and went to mydisabilityquestions.com. Lots more on the way of the disability law show. Stand by. You bet. We're back with the Disability Law Show. Thank you for tuning in. John Scholes here. And uh, always, it's going to be here with uh, Tamara doing all the uh, the heavy lifting. She's got the uh, the answers to all of your questions. So keep sending this in, by the way. We uh, we stockpile them right over the week, and we get to a bunch of them every show. You can also uh, phone Tamara and her team anytime, 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. Arpita, thank you so much for standing by. Our Peter's email says, hello, I worked for five and a half years with the company and was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. I'm currently on LTD and in my second year on LTD, which will be ending in December 2023. I'm still under treatment and I've also developed some side effects after diagnoses, chemo and surgery, which affect my daily life. Last week, I was contacted by my adjuster and was told to apply for CPPD, and I'm a bit confused why he asked me to do that. His answer was that it will be beneficial for me to receive CPPD, which is Canada Pension Plan Disability. Honestly, I have no idea how everything works uh, since I've never been on any type of leave from work. I only had one sick day in my duration from work. My adjuster is changing frequently since my diagnosis. So this current adjuster asked me if I would like my insurance company to send my medical information on my behalf to Canada Pension Plan Disability or if I would prefer to send it myself. My question is... Do I have to apply for CPPD? And if yes, who should send the medical information? I'm not sure what type of medical information they have they have on me at this point. Can you please advise? Thank you kindly. Oh. Great email. Yep. Yeah, great email uh, because this is a very common uh, point in time in which people like uh, Arpita will get this messaging from their adjuster saying, look, we think you should apply for CPP disability. A couple of reasons why they're going to ask that. The most important is because it saves the insurance company money, 
right? We talked about this early in the show, John. It's all about the bottom line for insurers. And the insurance company, if you are approved for CPP disability, will get a credit or a deduction for whatever you're getting from the government against what they're paying you for LTD. The example I always use is if, you know, ARPITA is getting $3,000 a month and now she starts getting $1,000 for CPP disability, insurance company is only going to pay her the difference, which is $2,000 a month. Mm -hmm. So they have an incentive financially to have people like ARPITA apply for CPP disability. That's the first and foremost. The other element, though, the behind-the-scenes type element, is that ARPITA is getting close to the change of definition. And so if she's got ongoing health issues, as she's described, these side effects from cancer treatment, which, by the way, are very common and very disabling, then no doubt her doctors are supporting that she's not capable of working and that she still requires time away from work to focus on her health. And it could be, I mean, December isn't far, John. It could be that she requires further time beyond that point. But the insurance company has to look at their change of definition, most likely. They are most likely looking at the policy and saying, okay, uh, we've accepted that ARPADA can't work at her own job or at her own occupation, but what's going to happen come December when that definition changes? And so if her doctor or her doctors are supporting that she has enough of a basis for a CPP disability application, some adjusters will look at that and say, okay, then it must mean that this person is not returning back to work anytime soon. Why is that? The CPP disability benefit is a benefit that's available, like I said, from by the federal government, and it's available to individuals who have a severe and prolonged disability. That's the two parts of the test to qualify. And so what ARPADA would have to do is actually put an application together, similar to what she completed for her long term, an application on her behalf, and then her doctor completes the medical part. Right. And the medical part has very critical questions being asked to the doctor, saying, will ARPADA return back to work? If so, in what period of time? If not, it, you know, what's the expectation of her prognosis? Are things going to get better, the same, or worse for her in the next number of years? And so what the government will look at is, is it severe enough? I think cancer is, frankly. Yeah. And is it prolonged? It could be, absolutely, with all of the side effects. You know, some people have um, permanent, uh, you know, neurological, it's called neuropathy, these tingling and numbness in the hands and feet that don't go away, for example. Um, others will have lingering mental health conditions, not surprising. So yes, it could be that, you know, she is qualifying for CPP disability. So I honestly, my real overall uh, view of this is that I think that CPP disability, actually the good outweighs the bad. So, yeah. you know, we see the incentive from the insurance company. I get that, but let's focus on ARPTA. Could she benefit from pursuing CPP disability? And I think the answer to that is yes, because that benefit, once approved, will continue likely so long as her health conditions continue and persist. And what if the disability insurer decides to cut her off at that point? Well, at least she can rely on the CPP disability benefit for the time that it takes, hopefully for someone like me to help her challenge the insurance company for more LDD. Um, but you know, when you ask, you know, she asked us more specifically about you know, do I allow the insurance company to send my medical information? Why not? You know, it's true that there's a bit of an abyss about what type of information the insurance company has on file, but most certainly they'll have everything that she submitted already and perhaps even more information that they got directly from her doctors. So if it's going to save her a step, 
definitely have no hesitation having the insurance company send over that information to help her apply for CPP disability with the big exception that she really needs to put this on her own doctor's radar. I would start with having a discussion with her own doctor, really getting into it and saying, look, where am I headed here? What are your expectations? Do you support this kind of an application? And if the answer to that is yes, then it's okay to give the insurance company the green light to share your medical information. What I don't want to see happen is the insurance company does something that doesn't assist her and that at the end of the day may compromise her CPP claim. I think, though, from what I'm reviewing and what she's described to us, I think the risk of that is probably relatively low. And as long as she's aware that the insurance company has a ton of upside, if she is approved by, for CPP disability, then I think she goes into it with her eyes wide open. As to whether or not there is a must apply, John, the policies don't say you are required to right. apply. But they say if we think you are eligible, some policies say we could estimate that amount. So they may take the deduction anyway. So our potential may as well just make that application. And if she's denied, it resists the insurer from taking that credit. But if she's approved, then she's got that additional benefit to rely upon so long as her health issues prevent her from continuing to work. All right, but thank you so much for that email. It's always good to enlighten everybody listening as well with those questions. We'll take a uh, one final short break here, guys, and get back into some more emails and questions. And you can send yours along anytime, maybe not for the show, maybe directly at tomorrow or otherwise. That is uh, help at disabilityrights.ca. And one 821 5900 because chances are you'll want to reach out by phone as well. So that would be your number. And we'll continue with more of the Disability Law Show momentarily. All right, we're back. A few minutes to go here on the Disability Law Show. Tomorrow, Gopian is the lawyer all Always give me the information, answering your questions brilliantly. Reach out after the show as well. Always an option, of course. one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca. You know, that two-year mark uh, tomorrow, we've we've talked about it several times, even on this show. We do every show, but that's it's kind of a watershed time for most claimants to get cut off. Are there strategies, say maybe three of them, that uh, you can offer our listeners to get beyond that two years? Yeah, look, it is a it is a watershed moment for sure because this is where we most often see people get cut off. And I think that if I were to you know whittle it down to like three things, I, I hate being limited this way, John. But yes, okay, let's go. Let's do three things. So number one, I think I would say um, medical reports. It's the most important thing. So you know the insurance company will let you know. Look, the two years are coming up. You know they may send one, two, three letters reminding you of that change of definition. And the, what you want to do is make sure that your doctors are providing up-to-date current information about how you're doing and what you're going to be like from a health perspective beyond that two-year mark. So the lens changes, right? It's no longer a conversation with your own medical team about are you totally disabled from the job that you were doing at the time that you became unwell and not able to work. But it's now a question of, is there anything else you can do? Anything in the world for which you've got the minimum you know, requirements, education, training, and experience. Now, your doctor isn't necessarily going to know your whole educational background or what other functions that you can do from a job perspective. But they can certainly comment on limitations and the impact of your health on your day-to-day functioning. And having that really hammered home, detailed, you know, even in a couple of paragraphs in a report for the insurance company is super important. If the doctor wants to go so far as to say, I think this patient of mine is incapable of working in any setting, then I think that that sets you up nicely to resist what most insurers will do, which is to say, we think you can do these three other jobs. And by the way, you don't have to earn as much. And so we're going to use this lower earnings level and, you know, away we go. We're going to cut off the claim. 
So number one piece of advice is having that up-to-date medical information. Number two, and I touched on it just in, in my first point, which is the insurance company is going to scrutinize your education, training, and experience. They'll likely get some kind of, you know, they call them vocational person, vocational rehab person to contact, you know, the claimant and say, okay, let's review your whole, you know, background from a work perspective. You know, this isn't a, a job interview. Okay. Most people like to be like, well, I can do this and I can do that. And I, you know, you're not selling yourself, you know, for, for a job. What you're trying to do is give a very even and balanced, uh, you know, history of what type of work you've done and what those jobs entailed. And so don't sugarcoat it for the insurance company. Don't make it. Yeah. I've got lots of computer experience, John. I, I you know, I can't, I, this one really gets me because there are, you know, claimants and clients that I represent who've done, you know, labor intensive jobs all of their lives. And then they'll tell the vocab person, yep, but I'm an expert at Excel, you know, spreadsheets, right? Or I'm an expert at, you know, computer work. And they will use the, this information. They will rely on those to make assumptions in their analysis of what transferable skills that you have to come up with these two or three jobs that they think that you can do. And so you want to be very even about the information that you provide, but you also don't want to embellish more than what you've actually done just because you feel like, well, okay, maybe I haven't done a whole lot, um, but I want to make it sound better for the insurance company. So I think that's, for me, uh, a second piece of advice that I can offer. Mm -hmm. And then the third one, I think, ties nicely with what we were talking about with ARPADA, which is... You want to start to think about um, if your health issues are going to persist beyond the two-year mark. Are there other sources of income you need to consider? Is CPP disability application one that makes sense at this time? Um, are there other health uh, requirements like specialists that you want to put on your doctor's radar that you should be getting referred to or other treatment op options that you should consider? If there are ongoing treatment efforts for ongoing health issues, there can be avenues, slivers of avenues <laughs> that I've seen that resist the insurer from cutting you off at that two-year mark. If they know that it's going to be another seven or eight months as opposed to four months to the change of definition, and that treatment may ultimately lead you back to work, then I have seen instances where insurance companies will say, look, we're going to pay you beyond the change of definition, but we're going to continue to keep a close eye on how you're doing and how you're progressing with these other treatment efforts. So this isn't a time to be passive. It's a time to be very um, active with what's happening with your health, what's going on with your conversations with your doctor, and then putting things in place so that the insurance company has full information to make their assessment because oftentimes they're going to cherry pick because they really are going to try and cut off the claim at the two-year mark and you want to be prepared for that and you know you know we're only a phone call away if that's eventually what's going to happen and we can identify further specific gaps John right like that's the other thing is that people come to us with these denial letters and I look at them I don't put a lot of stock into them but I can tell you that after a couple minutes I know which areas that I can build to help these claimants right successfully challenge the insurance companies with a legal claim and another amazing show, Tamara. You knock it out of the park every week. I love it. You want to reach Tamara and her team. Now they're always ready to uh, to handle your uh, your phone calls and your questions for sure and your problems. So bring it on. Help at disabilityrights.ca. That would be the email address as I keep plugging away here every hour, mydisabilityquestions.com. That's another avenue for you to use. And the phone number, write it down. Keep it 1-855-821-5900. And we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.